Welcome to Soylent Green, the podcast with an airy sense of reality. Just kidding. We try to stay pretty grounded here. But the ground does have a lot to do with the air in that it emits gases that interact with and affect the atmosphere. In this episode, we're going to find out just what these processes are and how they affect the world we live in. How do we depend on them? How are they changing? And what can we do to adapt to those changes? In this episode, we'll be joined by Dr. Jesse Cremian to help answer some of our most burning questions about atmospheric chemistry, ice-nucleating particles that facilitate cloud formation, and the unsung movers of the Earth who strike again, microbes. So just a little bit about Jesse. She is originally from a small town in northern Illinois. She went to college at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, <laughs> where she majored in chemistry. She then went on to get her master's and PhD from the University of California, San Diego, where she also studied chemistry, but from more of an atmospheric climate perspective. Next, she bounced over to the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, in Boulder, Colorado, where she did her postdoc fellowship on aerosol cloud precipitation processes in remote regions. And that, friends, is where she fell in love with the Arctic region. After working as a research scientist at NOAA, she wound up here in Fort Collins, Colorado, as a research scientist in the Colorado State University Department of Atmospheric Science. Jessie, for some reason, loves the cold. She's been to the Arctic eight times on land and icebreaking ships, and will be adding Antarctica to her list of places she works starting in 2024. Jessie is also an associate editor for two major atmospheric journals and has several students and postdocs that work on her projects involving aerosol particles, clouds, sea ice, the ocean, and permafrost. Also, when she's not traveling, she loves enjoying the Colorado lifestyle, aka climbing, skiing, mountain biking, camping, all the things. She has two cute fuzzy golden retrievers named Montana and Whiskey, who are her little adventure buddies. And dare I say, labor of love. (laughs) (laughs) Montana. (laughs) So welcome to the show, Jesse. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome, Jesse. Yeah, thanks for having me. Could you start off by telling us a little bit of how you started studying atmospheric chemistry? Yeah, so it was kind of a weird path. I actually wanted to be a doctor for the longest time. And I went into college in the pre-med program. And I was like, oh, what do I major in? Because you still have to major in a science or math or whatever. And my advisor at the time was the head of the chemistry department. He's like, oh, major in chemistry. You have to take a lot of it anyway. I was like, (laughs) sure, why not? Like playing with Bunsen burners in high school is fun. It's fun. Yeah, it is Things explode. Yeah, exactly. I wish I even had that experience. I didn't take any chemistry (laughs) in high school. I know. You never played with Bunsen burners? (laughs) No. Not until college. That's what makes chemistry cool. And then you get to chemistry in college, and you're like, oh, shit, this is hard. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I majored in chemistry. And then I really started to like the chemistry side of things after like the gen ed classes. And then I took a physiology class and I got like my first C ever. And I was like, oh, shit, I shouldn't be a doctor. Like Aww. if I can't even get through like <laughs> physiology and undergrad. You would have made a great doctor. (laughs) I may have not been able to solve what's wrong with you, but (laughs) you know, it's fine. Yeah. And then I just continued with chemistry and I took an environmental chemistry class and that's where I actually first learned about climate change, surprisingly. And that's where I was like, I need to do something with this. Yeah. It's pretty important. Yeah, totally. So applied to grad school and got in a program that had a PI. She was really heavy with the atmospheric chemistry side of things. So looking at like 
little particles in the air and what they're made of, where they come from, and how they affect air quality and how they affect clouds. And yeah, so that's kind of how it all started. PI is primary investigator. Yes. For our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> I will try to define acronyms, but I'm sorry if I do not. <laughs> oh, no, you're good. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about what you're currently studying? Yes. So I have a lot of different projects I'm working on. They're mostly involved in the polar regions, so Arctic or Antarctica or Southern Ocean. And right now, they are mostly revolved around looking at how microbiology in the ocean and soils and sea ice can materials into the air and how those materials can then affect climate after that. So looking at things like sea ice region and how microbes in the sea ice in the ocean there can emit materials into the Arctic atmosphere, how permafrost does its thawing, it's releasing materials into the waters and into the air, and hopefully soon going down to Antarctica and studying similar processes down there, but on land. Ooh, penguins. Penguins. Oh, my God. There are 17 species of penguins on the planet, and eight of those species live in Antarctica and its surrounding islands. Included in those eight are the emperor penguin, which is the largest penguin weighing up to 100 pounds, the Adelie penguin, the Gentoo penguin, chinstrap penguins, the macaroni penguin, rockhopper, magellanic, and of course, the king penguin. Just smile and wave, boys. Smile and wave. Will you be in the same like region as penguins? Yeah, there's a penguin colony there. And actually, penguin poop is a big issue with regard to contaminating the air measurements there. They're like, we're getting some interference here. (laughs) It's penguin poop. (laughs) Steve's over there. Sorry, guys. (laughs) Steve Steve the the penguin. penguin. (laughs) (laughs) According to Science Alert, the feces or guano produced by the king penguin in Antarctica emits so much nitrous oxide that it is affecting the mental health of the researchers who spend too much time around them. Nitrous oxide is a colorless, odorless chemical compound that is commonly referred to as laughing gas due to the euphoric side effects it has on humans. It was first used to concoct surgical and dental anesthesia in the mid-1880s and continues to be used now as a sedative by medical professionals. Please, people, don't huff that doo-doo. So I'm kind of fascinated by this because I didn't realize that microbiology had as big of effect on climate by becoming airborne. So like, how does that work? Yeah, it's very active, very research. There's a whole like sub area of research that focuses on the quote aerobiome, unquote. So it's not just when things come from soils or snow, like there's microbes in snow, there's microbes on plant surfaces that become airborne, for example, after it rains, actually. This happens all over the world where when it rains, it hits the plant surfaces or soil surfaces, and then that actually ejects tiny water droplets into the air that can contain biological materials. So that can be microbes themselves or fragments of microbes, or it can be the things that they generate. So all the organic goo that they make. But yeah, these are processes that people are studying. They're pretty commonly in the air. Don't be alarmed, everyone. There is bacteria floating around, but they're not going to kill you. (laughs) I mean, if you think about it, though, the COVID virus is an airborne virus. What? I know, right? So, (laughs) Yeah, but plant stuff is just floating around kind of pretty frequently all over the place. I mean, that makes sense to me. Like, I'm working in this nematology lab and, you know, we'll be like looking at these petri dishes and there'd just be like a little bit of moisture on top, like tiny little water droplets. And there'd be like a few to 
dozens of nematodes in one little droplet of water. Yes. I'm like, oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) Made me second guess like all the tap water I've ever drank (laughs) in my life. (laughs) You guys have heard about, sorry, side tangent, but you've heard about the amoeba that attacks your brain. Oh yeah, brain eating amoeba. From tap water. Oh. And also it can get into your airways, like your nose or your mouth, even if you're just jumping into fresh water. Bodies of water, like mm-hmm. we have dun, dun. <laughs> a big old horse tooth reservoir out there, and I think about that every time. Every time I jump in without any cares. Yeah. <laughs> Infections with Nagleria phalari, the so-called brain-eating amoeba, are extremely rare, but also extremely deadly. Only 146 cases have been reported in the U.S. since 1962, with only four surviving the infection. So there is a 97% chance of death. N. phalari lives in warm freshwater and feeds on bacteria found in the sediment. Amoeba are stirred into the water when the lake silt is disturbed. The parasite can then be inhaled by swimmers through their noses. N. phalari then spreads to the brain where it invades the olfactory nerves and results in serious illness. This amoeba is most likely acquired while swimming in freshwater, but can also affect the brain of those who use tap water instead of sterile water or saline when using the nasal flushing neti pot. Similar to the lakes and hot springs where the amoeba lives, the brain is warm and moist. However, because there is no bacteria in the brain for the amoeba to consume, it feeds on the brain cells instead. Wear N95 and don't inhale the amoebas. Wear an N95 while we're swimming? Yes, N95s all the time. (laughs) No one cared who I was till I put on the mask. So this biological material that gets emitted into the air, what effect does that have on cloud formation? Yeah, so I'll start with how clouds form, because I think that's kind of important one to know for this question. So you guys see puffy white clouds in the air all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Those clouds are usually composed of a lot of droplets and ice crystals. Those droplets and ice crystals need something to form on. So water has to go through really extreme conditions when it's in the air to form a droplet or an ice crystal just with water. But if you think of like when you shower, your mirror fogs up, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a surface that water can condense on. So aerosol particles, which are tiny little things that are suspended in the air, act like basically a mirror when you shower. So there's a surface for water to condense on. Now, how water condenses on that particle depends on what it's made of, how big it is, what the surface of this particle is like, whether it's really rough or really smooth temperature, how much water vapor is present, like all kinds of different things. Is there a certain temperature at which clouds form or is it like dependent on the environment? Depends. So if it's droplets, like liquid water droplets in a cloud, that can form at a lot of different temperatures. But when you're talking about ice, which should be freezing, (laughs) it's an important process in clouds because ice is how most precipitation, rain or snow on the globe forms. So you got to have ice for the most part, except for those like marine clouds that kind of drizzle. You don't necessarily need ice for those. But for most clouds, you need ice. And ice has to form by a certain subset of aerosol particles that are very unique. They have these properties that basically allow water to form an ice structure on the surface. So it condenses and forms a droplet. And then once temperatures are cold enough, so this is where the temperature thing really comes in, that's when you have ice formation. And it depends, again, on what type of aerosol it is and the water vapor in the air. And if you have a lot of vertical motion in the air, so a lot of winds that are pushing it up. 
Turbulence. Turbulence. Yes. <laughs> atmospheric turbulence. I retained a couple things from microclimatology. <laughs> You're just going to throw in buzzwords this whole thing, aren't you? <laughs> Microbes. <laughs> Hashtag. <laughs> Hashtag turbulence. <laughs> So the microbes are what is serving as the surface for these water vapors to form clouds. Not all of them. So that's how clouds form. In theory, that sounds great. You know, oh, we have particles in the air. There's going to be water, it condenses, and then if it's cold enough, it freezes. Nope, not that simple. Of course not, right? Otherwise, I wouldn't have a job. Right. <laughs> so basically, I, I mentioned type of aerosol. And so the aerosols I study are ones that form ice. So they have these unique properties. And those can be things like dust. So dust from agricultural regions or from deserts, those can be really good at forming ice and clouds. And those are actually pretty common in the air. So you've seen dust storms before, you know, a lot of times when you're in the Midwest, think of like, what is it? Tatooine is like the dust planet in Star Wars. So a lot of INPs there, ice nucleating particles. How is that place just not filled with dust all the time? I don't know. No (laughs) winds, I guess. You got to have the winds. Oh, dry. So that's the dust side of things. But then... Certain types of microbes, so a very small percentage of microbes, have these special proteins or these special surface properties that actually water loves to attach to and to form ice. And those happen at actually pretty warm sub-zero temperatures. So these would be like, okay, 32 (laughs) degrees. That's where freezing you think happens. Actually, that's not true. So if you had pure water, you would not see freezing until about minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Whoa. Pure water. Interesting. So but, like straight up just yeah. like distilled H2O. Yeah. Wow. Even then it's hard to get there because you often even have impurities in distilled water that's enough to like trigger freezing. <laughs> I know. This is kind of weird, right? Like what am I drinking? My lab yeah. has been lying to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's good you drink minerals. Minerals are good. So yeah, you need those. Yeah, you need those. So yeah, the water usually has something in it. And a lot of times drinking water, like when you have an ice cube tray, you have impurities in it. That's why it looks cloudy. Because you have something in there that started the formation of an ice germ, it's called. And then it just kind of branches off. So that's kind of how things work in a cloud in the atmosphere is like you have these little particles. They start to form ice in a droplet. And that depends on what they're made of. And so microbes actually are really, really good at forming ice, sometimes up to like just below freezing. So they really speed up the process of ice formation clouds. The one thing is they're super rare. So these aerosols that form ice in general are like one in a million particles in the air. Wow. So they're not like contributing a lot to precipitation? They do, though. That's the thing is like you don't need a ton of them to start ice formation in a cloud. And then once you have this ice starting to form, there's all these subsequent processes that happen that like ice crystals will form and they shatter forming multiple ice crystals or they uh... hit a droplet and then they shatter or they splinter or There's all these different things that like really exponentially increases the amount of ice and clouds. And then once you have ice particles that are big enough, they start to fall. Okay. And that's where you get snowfall. But sometimes that lower atmosphere is a lot warmer. And so that snow or ice or whatever will kind of melt into rain. And that happens a lot here in Colorado. So we get a lot of that, that cold rain. Essentially, these ice nucleating particles, or INPs, are essential for the formation of ice crystals in clouds. Cloud ice crystals influence climate by changing the amount of sunlight that clouds reflect and acting as seeds for a portion of the precipitation that falls on our surface. A variety of naturally occurring particle sources contribute to atmospheric INPs, including windborne dust, sea spray particles, 
biological particles such as fungal spores, bacteria, and pollen, as well as ash and other particles from forest fires. In some cases, human-caused particulate pollution may potentially contribute to atmospheric IMPs. Therefore, in order to improve climate predictability in the coming century, it is important to have a better understanding of these particles, including their sources, their interactions with the atmosphere, and their effect on cloud formation. So basically, all of it starts as ice? Not all of it, but a lot of it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> a lot of it. Because you still have like drizzle. Yeah. Like over the ocean, you got these really low clouds, they're really warm, and that's where you get like wimpy little rain droplets. I was going to say, it can't drizzle. be like in Florida. Like there's, there's, I mean, maybe? Actually, so in the tropics <laughs> and, and subtropics, you get those really deep convective clouds, right? Mm. So the higher up you get in the atmosphere, the really freaking cold up there. Yeah. So you get ice. <laughs> True. Yeah. And that's actually how hail starts. You have ice mm. and ice actually is important in lightning and it really plays a big role in hurricanes. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a big thing. It's a little thing, but it can make a big impact. Yeah. Good thing you're studying it. Can you talk about some of the different kinds of aerosols? Like, are there a, a ton of different kinds or is it just like a handful that you study or? How many? Yeah. I don't know. Like... <laughs> A lot, but not as many as there are aerosols in the air, oh, okay. if that makes sense. So I study a particular unique property of certain aerosols. So like these aerosols that are really good at forming cloud ice, they are usually dust or, or different types of microbes or organics that come from microbes. At really cold cloud temperatures, they can be things like volcanic ash and soot from combustion. But if you look at all aerosols, there's got to be as many types of aerosols as there are people on the planet. I and mean, we just exceeded 8 billion, right? Like there's tons. Do you maybe like give us a quick definition? Of, like what is an aerosol? Yeah, yeah, maybe go over some of the ones that most people are familiar with. Yeah, totally. So an aerosol is basically by fundamental definition, it's a liquid or a solid suspended in a gas. In this case, we're talking about the atmosphere is the gas and the liquid or solid can be these particles that come from all over the place. So hairspray. Hairspray, technically, that is an aerosol, yes. They don't necessarily make it up to clouds, but... You know, Damn it, this I whole know. time I'm just standing in my yard spraying in the sky for no reason. Cloud seeding at its finest, right. hairspray. <laughs> yeah, but so I'll go through the basic categories, but they get really complicated past that. There's natural aerosols, so that's things like dust from deserts or agriculture regions. There's biological aerosols, so those are like microbes, like fungi, pollen algae, bacteria, all kinds of things. And then there is sea salt. So that's a big one because we have 70% of the globe's covered in oceans. There's a lot of salt in there, a lot of waves, a lot of bubbles coming from the oceans. And then you have things like pollution. So these are like the anthropogenic side of it. So pollution is a whole messy host of all kinds of crap. It's a lot. I can only imagine. It's yeah. a lot. <laughs> I won't even go into the details, but it's a lot. So these are aerosols that are emitted as solids or liquids into the air. And then you have things like certain types of gases actually under the right conditions. So when you have the right sunlight or temperature, or humidity, they actually react in the atmosphere. So this is where the chemistry stuff comes in and they'll form aerosol particles hmm. in the atmosphere and they're really tiny and they're made of all kinds of weird compounds. A lot of people I know study these things and what they are and how they transform once they're in the air and what they do climatically and the air quality. That's a big thing. And then you have also things like biomass burning. So that is basically can either be natural or anthropogenic. So you have forest fires with smoke, all kinds of junk in the atmosphere. And then you have like wood burning or maybe not so much here, maybe a little bit in the winter. But like where I work, there's a lot of burning because people are trying to keep their houses warm. So yeah, there's those are kind of like, I would say the main 
big sources, but it just gets to a potpourri of complication beyond that. So should I go yell at my housemate out back who's got a, a wood-burning stove only to keep him warm in the winter? I mean, but it's like, do you get your heat from wood or do you get your heat from oil? Like, we're, you know, it's, it's hard to know what's better. Yeah. <laughs> I will say it's real cozy in there. I room. know. And it smells nice. <laughs> it does. <laughs> <laughs> How does cloud formation affect climate? And what does the changing climate, how is that going to affect cloud formation? Ooh, boy. (laughs) All right. First question, I'll totally answer. Second question, that's a big one. Again, that's why people like me have jobs, because there's conflicting evidence from different studies and different models about how clouds affect climate. But the reason why we care about clouds is because they are like energy absorbers or reflectors. So they can either act like a blanket or a mirror. Can we like real quickly sidebar into albedo? (laughs) All right. So albedo is a fun word to say, but it basically translates to the reflectivity of something and how much light or heat things reflect back into space. So if you think of like snow and ice, it looks really bright, right? And it reflects a lot. So its albedo is really high because it reflects a lot of light and heat back into space. Maybe not heat, more light. But then you have things like clouds. You've seen cirrus clouds, right? So they're really high up. They're kind of faint and wispy. And they're super cold clouds, but they don't reflect a lot of light because light can get through those clouds. Versus if you have those big, bright white clouds that you see like during the summer here, that's reflecting a shitload of light. It casts a shadow over the And it casts a shadow. So it kind of serves as two purpose, right? It like reflects sunlight. And then the earth emits heat. You can kind of feel that, you know, like in the summer where you feel sunlight hitting the ground and it's feeling a little warm. That's actually not the light. It's the heat that's generated from that light hitting the earth. Long wave radiation? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And then the sunlight short wave radiation. The long wave radiation is what feels like heat to us. And clouds can actually trap that heat in the Earth's lower atmosphere. And so how many clouds we have, how often they exist, how optically thick or thin they are. So that basically means how much they reflect or absorb into the atmosphere, what kind of phase they are. So that's either if they're liquid water or ice crystals or both, how deep they are, all kinds of parameters of clouds basically translate to how much light it can reflect back to space and how much heat it can absorb into the atmosphere. And so we care about these, obviously, because, well, you know, if you reflect all of sunlight back to space, it's going to be cold as shit here. (laughs) But if you trap all the heat in, we're going to burn up. So... Clouds are really important in the energy balance, I'll say. So energy being light and heat in the Earth's atmosphere because they help regulate some of that. Aren't they also like responsible for most of the reflected energy like back into space? Yeah, totally. Because there's a ton of them usually. I mean, if you've ever seen a satellite image of the Earth, it's like a lot of white clouds everywhere. You can't even see the Earth. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So that's reflecting a lot of light back to space. And does light and heat get reflected or insulated with aerosols as well? Yes, definitely. The magnitude of the effect is not as big as clouds. Sure. But you can still get certain types of aerosols that act like little mirrors in the air. So sea salt is a good example. Mm. That reflects sunlight back to space. And then things like soot from like a tailpipe of a truck, that's absorbing. So that will actually absorb heat into the atmosphere where it is. So soot is a mixture of black and brown carbon. And what that means is black carbon is like the dark, sheerly carbonaceous aerosol particles. They look a little different. Brown carbon gets into all these organic type carbon particles, but they're called brown carbon because they absorb energy a little differently. You did mention different phases of clouds. What are mixed phase clouds? Yes. So there's basically three types of phases of clouds. There's liquid clouds. 
So that would be an example of like those really low ones over the ocean that are above freezing point. So they typically only have liquid. You can have liquid below freezing Is point. Fog, but one of those. Fog can also be ice, though. So that's where it gets complicated. Uh. Fog is basically just a cloud that is touching the surface. It's technically a stratus cloud. Really? Yes. Interesting. Mm-hmm. The sound of me agreeing to something about which I haven't a clue. I had to look up stratus clouds afterwards. and They are those low altitude, wispy, featureless blankets of clouds that can take on slightly different forms and can be born of different types of clouds. Like, for example, at the base of cumulonimbus clouds, those big, puffy, tall ones, or alongside mountains in some cases. Apparently, they are generally indicative of stable weather patterns, though some can precipitate as well. But yeah, so you have these liquid clouds, which can be cloud, fog, all liquid water. Then you can have ice clouds. So those are like those really high cirrus clouds. So those temperatures, I don't know if you've ever like flown and you've seen the airplane stats on the monitor. It's like minus 70 Fahrenheit. Yeah, and you're like, oh, cool. my God. Yeah, that's all ice. <laughs> And then you have these mixed phase clouds, which they contain both ice crystals and water droplets. And these are the most common on Earth in terms of cloud fraction. And these are the ones that are really important for rain or snow formation or for really interacting with light and heat. So these are really, really important clouds. I'll speak from a polar perspective because that's more my area of expertise. So in the Arctic, it's projected to become cloudier just because of the amount of water that's going to be present in the air because the ice is melting and declining and not coming back to its full extent. So there's supposed to be more water vapor in the air. There's supposed to be more particles in the air potentially from, I didn't even get into this yet, but marine biology ejecting stuff into the air. And then if you have open ocean, you have sea salt and you have microbes and you have all kinds of organic stuff going up into the air. Up there, it depends on the time of year. So if you have sunlight, it's going to reflect sunlight. But the cool thing, bizarre thing about the polar regions (laughs) is there's no sunlight for half of the year. So then the reflection part doesn't matter. That's when it's actually clouds are most important in the Arctic is because you have only that long wave or thermal energy. Interesting. Yeah. I guess. So if there are more clouds, I'm guessing it would be warmer. Yes. In the winter. Yeah. Yeah. In the summer. Jury's out. (laughs) Can we get them back in here already? (laughs) Then I wouldn't have a job. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it depends on the time of year, how much sunlight you have how much heat's generated from the earth. I mean, I'm just going to say it depends a lot. I'm sorry. Jesse touched on this a little bit, but I just want to give a real world example. And I'm sure some of you might be able to relate. I know this is very localized, but when I lived in Steamboat, Colorado, I experienced a warming effect when it would snow. Usually, not always, the snowy days were relatively warmer than the clear sunny days. And this is mainly because of a couple factors, though probably more than I'm unaware of, like the relatively small size of the valley and local geographic features, which allowed the clouds to fill the valley and then trap that long wave radiation in town. On the other hand, a clear cloudless day allowed that heat to leave the system unimpeded and continue back out into space. Ideally, anyway, because as we know, and as we've been discussing here, an overabundance of aerosols reflects some of that back towards the earth. And this concept does seem to come up a lot in this conversation. So (laughs) in in your field, are people just modeling this? Is that like the big push to see what's going to happen in the future? Yes, models are a really important part of it. The problem with the models is they're not always getting it right. And that's in part due to the observations aren't there yet. So Mm -hmm. we go measure things in the field. You know, we measure them typically at one point, a specific point in time. That's not representative of the whole world. That's not representative of like if you're measuring aerosols or clouds in the summer, 
it can be a completely different story in the winter, and it usually is. So obviously, it's unrealistic to have observations everywhere all the time. So you mean I can't base all of my scientific understanding on one paper? No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're just about to go and do some observations in Antarctica, right? Can you tell us a little bit about your next journey? Well, there's a couple. So my funding and my projects come from foundations like the National Science Foundation and Department of Energy. Whoop, whoop, shout out to those two. They're great. Uh, But they basically fund cool projects to go and explore these big gaps in knowledge that we have. And so Antarctica is a huge gap in knowledge because it's freaking hard to get down there. Like it's way easier to get to the Arctic. Well, I guess some people go in the winter, but most people just in the summer, right? Yeah, there's the Antarctic summer. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I just had to do a search recently of how many publications say the word Arctic versus Antarctic. Just looking at different parameters and there's like a fraction of the amount of research done in the Antarctic as there is even the Arctic. And then if you look at that compared to the mid-latitudes where we live, it's just like not even on the radar. So the Antarctic's a really understudied region. So anyway, I have a couple of projects that might happen down there. One is at, it's called Palmer Station. So it's on the peninsula. Have you guys seen the little hook? That's where Palmer Station, that's where a penguin colony is. South of South America for yeah, all those yeah. others who don't know. Thank you. <laughs> it's East south West? of everything. Everything. <laughs> So yeah, we'll be going down there and I'll be down there for probably three, four months and we're going to be setting up some equipment that measures different unique properties of aerosols. So what they are, where they come from, how many, and then how good they are at forming clouds. And then we'll also have a collaborator. He's going to be looking at different cloud properties and meteorology at that station. So we can say, okay, we're seeing aerosols here. Are they maybe making their way up there? Are they affecting clouds or not? What do they look like depending if it's fall or spring or winter or summer? And where is the air coming from? So we can do air mass modeling to say, okay, we are seeing this weird thing on this day. Where was the air coming from? And we could say, oh, it was coming from Australia or it was coming from the ocean or it was coming from the dry valleys in Antarctica or something. But so yeah, we're going to be setting that up. And then we will swap personnel for 18 months to measure this stuff over 18 months. All the seasons. And how are you ruling out the penguin gases? I mean, obviously summer, they're going to be more active. Actually, one of my colleagues is doing aerosol chemistry measurement that will be able to tell us some details about compounds. So there are certain compounds that are emitted from poop, from animals, Okay. especially coastal animals. They're called amines. That's so cool. Yes. So we'll see. Keep us posted. Yeah, amines from (laughs) penguin poop. poop. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I listened to a few episodes and I heard poop on both of them. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So can you explain to our listeners why... There's so much research going on in the polar regions and why it's so important to study right now. Yes. So the polar regions have a severe dearth of observations compared to everywhere else. So that's one issue. Sure. The next issue is that they're changing faster than everywhere else. So, and I'll just speak from the Arctic side of things, but there's an effect called Arctic amplification. So as the entire Earth warms, it's amplified in the Arctic. And that's because of a number of different processes. So When you have a warmer Arctic, you have snow and ice on land and sea ice melting. It's not coming back as much as it should. This is where albedo is going to come back. Hashtag albedo. (laughs) The albedo is lower of these surfaces because you have less of it. So instead of these really reflective white surfaces, you actually have dark ocean or you have dark land that absorbs more sunlight instead of reflecting it and emits it as heat. So you actually have more heat that's being generated from these surfaces in the Arctic and Antarctic also happening down there. and But yeah, that's why you hear, oh, the Arctic's warming X times faster than the rest of the planet. Now it's four times faster. It used to be two to three. And it's because of these effects where 
you have heating that melts frozen surfaces, and then those surfaces actually absorb more light. We learned the thawing permafrost releases microbes to release more greenhouse gas emissions. So the uncovering of this permafrost is Scientists warn that an alarming amount of methane, a greenhouse gas 25% more potent than carbon dioxide, is being released into the atmosphere as a result of the thawing of the Arctic permafrost as global temperatures rise. An estimated 1,700 billion metric tons of carbon, including methane and carbon dioxide, are stored in the Arctic permafrost alone. That is nearly 51 times more carbon dioxide than was emitted into the atmosphere as a result of all fossil fuels in 2019 when this article was published. When permafrost thaws, bacteria on the dead plant matter begin to break down the organic material, releasing carbon and methane into the atmosphere at a compounding rate. However, Arctic soils also contain methane-oxidizing bacterium that use methane as their energy source, which will most likely reduce some of the emissions, but the exact offset is unknown. I don't want to say doubling, but it's increasing greenhouse gas emissions as it's melting, as it's heating up. So it's just a lack of snowball, but like a a (laughs) snowball that isn't going to be there anymore. (laughs) A melting snowball effect. (laughs) The term we're looking for here is a positive feedback loop. (laughs) Like Alyssa just mentioned, In the case of a warming atmosphere, we see increased levels of greenhouse gases like methane and carbon dioxide reflecting more longwave radiation back to Earth instead of letting it back out into space, which further warms and melts sea ice and permafrost, thus releasing more of these gases and exacerbating the issue further. We'll get into this concept a little more later as well. Yeah, it's it's crazy, actually. I've read papers about how much methane and CO2 is coming from these reservoirs that are just like stored permanently there underground, but now because the earth's warming so much faster, like they're just being released in the air. And listeners, and you guys have probably heard of like these craters that are just appearing in like Siberia. And I don't think there's been any in Alaska yet, but I'm sure with more warming, I mean, you have all these gases that are preserved down there and then, you know, you get a little bit of thawing and it's like way out. Do we know the extent to the depth of some of those soil profiles that are holding these bacteria, methanogens, whatever else is coming out of them? I think so. We don't do so much of that work for my projects, but there are boreholes that go down really far. I mean, like hundreds of meters that have been developed to study these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And we don't study the like methane reserves Mm -hmm. down there naturally, but I read a little bit about it. And there's definitely like people who go and do these boreholes and they monitor this stuff over time. Yeah. Yeah. And methane's a worse greenhouse gas than CO2. Right. Right. More potent. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like not as much in terms of concentration. Yeah, yeah. But it's but, like four times as potent. So yeah, yeah. It still overpowers it. So what's your favorite part of your job? And maybe your least favorite if you're willing to tell us. Favorite part. I get to travel all over the place. And that's cool. And I'm an adventure junkie, so I get to go to cool places. I mean, the Arctic and Antarctic, if you like adventure and you want to become a scientist, you should probably go work there because it's extreme. And seeing polar bears is super cool. And it's just going to get warmer, folks. It's just going to get warmer, right. <laughs> So the travel is super cool. And part of that is like having a really cool network of colleagues and scientists. So like I know I have scientists, friends, colleagues from all over the world, different disciplines. I think that's a big one is like, you know, not just culturally, it's cool to have friends all over the place, but to be able to work with them because everything's connected. So I'm an atmospheric chemist, but I know enough about biology and physics and like 
working with ecologists during a lot of my projects has been really rewarding because we're like, oh man, that's how that works. Or like we make these connections that like your knowledge base can't necessarily answer it on its own. Yeah. So that's super cool. I really like doing that and it's fun. What's your least favorite? Being gone from my dog. <laughs> oh my God. I'd miss them too. <laughs> as crazy as Montana is. <laughs> I know. She's a very good snuggler though. So. Can you tell us a bit about the multidisciplinary drifting observatory for the study of Arctic climate or mosaic expedition? So it was this year-long experiment in the Arctic. And so we took this German icebreaker called the Polar Stern and we went up to the Arctic and we purposely froze it into the ice. The sea ice doesn't just sit there. It doesn't just like grow and shrink and grow and shrink. It actually moves across the pole. So it's called transpolar drift. So the ice is constantly moving. It's very dynamic. Sometimes it pulls apart from itself and you get this stress and that's where you get cracks in the ice. Sometimes those cracks reclose and it pushes up against itself and then you get these things called ridges. So you get like kind of mountains of ice. They're not very big ones, but we're talking like 10, 20 feet. But the ice is very dynamic. And so we froze the ship in. It's drifting for a full year. Wait, how do you make sure the ship doesn't get crushed? <laughs> the ship is made to not get crushed. Oh, okay. <laughs> Engineering. Yeah. So we froze in the ice and then it was really awesome because it was a really interdisciplinary effort. Because how often does a ship go into the Arctic for a full year to make observations? I will tell you it's happened once before. Really? Wow. Well, there's also been like the Nansen expedition and like the old timey stuff in wooden ships and they were really extreme and... Let's say the most recent polar expedition. Modern. Yeah, modern one. The mosaic evaluated the physical, chemical, and biological processes that integrate the Arctic atmosphere, sea ice, ocean, and ecosystem. The RV Polar Stern, the icebreaker ship, functioned as an extensive observatory for a full year starting in the fall of 2019 that drifted with the Arctic sea ice, enabling scientists to gather data throughout every season. A distributed network of critical measurements to collect information on spatial variability were positioned all around the ship. This compilation of data points will help provide more accurate modeling, sea ice interactions, weather forecasting, and climate predictions. It already <laughs> happened. Oh, okay. So it happened from fall of 2019 to fall of 2020, and it involved over 20-some different nations, over 700 scientists. So we weren't there the whole time. We would like switch back and forth, and there would be other icebreakers that would actually go up and switch out the scientists and crew, and then bring more provisions like food and supplies and stuff. Cheetos. We didn't have Cheetos. We all had M&Ms. <laughs> it actually gives you a lot of energy when you're working on the sea ice because it's freaking cold out there. I bet. Yeah, That's but great. so this study basically looked at everything from the bottom of the ocean to properties of the ice and the snow to the atmosphere to the whole system and understanding how all that works together and how that's changing with a diminishing sea ice. We had to look up some more fun trivia on the Polar Stern, or Polestar, which is the flagship of fleet research vessels operated by the Alfred Wagner Institute, or AWI. Apparently, on its first trip to the North Pole in 1991 with fellow Swedish research vessel and icebreaker Odin, there were games of tug-of-war and soccer played between the two crews on the ice floes. The Polar Stern served as a floating laboratory for about 100 researchers collaborating on the Mosaic expedition that we talked about earlier. During COVID in March of 2020, the entire Polar Stern aviation team was quarantined in Germany as a result of one pilot contracting COVID, which delayed the retrieval of the data. Luckily, this happened after Jesse was aboard. Some pop culture trivia on the Polar Stern that we found. The opening track of German band Icebreaker's debut album, 
Icebreaker, which is German for, you guessed it, Icebreaker, is titled Polarstern. The dimensions and characteristics of a massive ship are described throughout the song, exaggerating Polarstern's actual measurements. The ship is also a major theme in the 2010 album Atemlos, or Breathless, by German artist Schiller, whose voyage on the ship is also depicted in the DVD of the same name. We also wanted to give a shout out to Fridjof Nansen, whose first ever drift expedition to the North Pole aboard the Fram, Norwegian for forward, began on June 24th, 1893. The ship set out along the coast of Norway and left her last port of call at Vardo on the northern tip of Norway on July 21st, bound for the new Siberian islands on the northeast side of Russia, where she was scheduled to turn north to enter the ice flows. Fun fact, apparently during the crew selection process, during which thousands of applications were received, one among them was 20-year-old Roald Amundsen, who was mentioned in our episode with Diana Wall for his later expedition to the South Pole. He did not attend Nansen's expedition, however, because his mother stopped him from going. While this tale is too long to get into, into too much detail here, suffice it to say that Nansen and his crew never were able to reach the North Pole on this first expedition, but brought back a wealth of new observations and information about the Arctic. When Nansen realized the Fram would never reach the North Pole, he and Hjalmar Johansson, a former Army Reserve lieutenant and dog driving expert who was so desperate to go on the journey that he signed on as a fire stoker for the boiler, set out with three dog sledges on the ice flows to make a dash for it. Not a month later, however, and without reaching the pole, but having set a new record for traveling farthest north, they had to turn around due to the ever-erratic conditions of the moving ice flows. Another interesting connection here is that Hjalmar Johansson later became part of Roald Amundsen's crew also aboard the Fram, with influence from Nansen, for Amundsen's 1910 South Pole expedition, but was sidelined by Amundsen for his violent quarreling. There's also a sad tale in here that I won't get into now. The Fram is now housed in a museum open to the public in Oslo, Norway. I was also going to ask about soil. I know you're not a soil scientist, but I know <laughs> it's also a big source of like natural greenhouse gas emissions. So how do these warming soils also, particularly in the Arctic, impact your research? Yeah, so I don't do the gases so much, but with thawing permafrost. So permafrost is basically soil that's been continuously frozen for two or more years. And so this happens in the northern southern hemispheres and polar regions. And there are a lot of microbes that live in the soil because if you think about it, it's like really old soil that has a bunch of decomposing detritus and all kinds of vegetation in there and dirt and everything. And so it's kind of like preserving all this stuff. But because it's thawing, it's releasing this stuff into the air. So the gases can get through you know, the soil because it's easier to maneuver. But these little microbes that are there, what we think, and this is like sheerly hypothesis based, but we're testing this with the current project I'm doing, is do these microbes make their way into water? And then from there, it's much easier for water to create particles in the air through bubbles and waves and everything. And in these polar regions, you have a lot of these lakes and really marshy type surfaces, especially in the late summer, and especially now in the late summer. And then you have coastal regions. So a lot of this junk from the permafrost is transported via streams and rivers out into the ocean. So it could be a pretty widespread problem. We don't really know. We're studying if permafrost is getting into these water bodies and then if it is being emitted into the air through the freshwater bodies or if it's being transported to the ocean and then emitted from there. Interesting. We don't know yet. So how do algal blooms affect cloud formation? Those are another fun one. So algal blooms happen in the ocean and a lot of times it is in these regions where you have a lot of material that is being deposited from the land because you have a lot of iron and these phytoplankton love iron that fuels them. And so these 
algal blooms have a lot of microorganisms associated with them. I mean, they're basically like a bunch of phytoplankton replicating and eating and replicating. And you have these like pretty prolific biological blooms. And you can sometimes see them from satellite. I mean, it makes the water look like greenish, bluish. And so in the ocean, you have a lot of waves, right? A lot of waves, a lot of water activity. There's a lot of roughness to the surface. And so there's a lot of material that can be ejected from the surface. And we've seen and what other folks in my area of research have seen is that these blooms have so much microbial stuff in terms of cells and organics and all kinds of excrements and everything that can make it into the air. And again, a lot of these have been shown to be really prolific at forming ice and clouds. And we think a lot of it's the bacteria, but there's also all kinds of organic gunk that comes from microbes that they produce. So we think these bloom areas could be really important potentially in the future, especially in polar regions with the ice retreating and then you have more open water and we might have more biological productivity in the ocean. And mm. so we might have more biological aerosols that could seed clouds in the future. Maybe. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. More so than terrestrial, you're saying? Oh, that's, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I want to say that. <laughs> Soils and plants. I mean, those make it up into the air so much more easily than in marine environments. But we have seen evidence of these blooms producing these ice nucleating particles or aerosols at levels that are similar to some farm regions in the middle of the U.S. So possible. I mean, maybe if the entire surface of the ocean, 70% of the world was all blooming at once. Yes. But <laughs> that's a lot. That's a lot. And then I don't think that's possible. What advice would you give to aspiring researchers in the atmospheric science slash chemistry realm? Okay, so I think this maybe applies to multiple types of sciences, but I think maybe for atmospheric, especially in any environmental science, like you can kind of shape what your career looks like. So I went in wanting to be a doctor and then going to chemistry. I'm like, shit, I'm going to work in a lab for my entire life behind a fume hood. That was not something I wanted to do. But then once I got down this atmospheric or environmental chemistry track or science track, even like this applies to even meteorology and everything, you can kind of choose what you want to do. You got to jump through the hoops. I mean, yeah. everybody does. You're going to have a lot of challenges. It's going to be hard. I had a challenging time in grad school. I'm not going to lie. It was really hard for me. But if you can make it through that, you can like do whatever you want. Obviously, you have to work somewhere and you have to do what they tell you to do sometimes. But for someone like in my field, and specifically, and like if you get your PhD and you go in academia or a national lab setting, you can choose the direction you want to go. If you care a lot about wildfires, you can do wildfire research. You can do pollution research if you care a lot about air quality in cities. If you like doing all the adventure things, you can go work in the Andes. Like you can choose what project you want to do. There's problems everywhere that need to be solved. So if you want to go places, Find what missing links are there. That's kind of like with me discovering climate change. And I was like, oh, God. And then especially discovering how bad it was in the polar regions. I'm like, oh, my God, like I need to do that. <laughs> and so you can choose what you want to do eventually. If you don't want to travel, that's fine. Some people think I'm nuts for wanting to go to cold places. Go do tropics work. Like there's all <laughs> kinds of science going on in the tropics. You don't even have to go anywhere. You can be an observationalist and go in the field and do all this travel. You can be a modeler that does computational stuff and they take everything that we learn from the field and from pre-existing models and say, okay, we're going to make this better so that we can understand how things are going to change in the future. We can maybe improve operational weather models. So 
there's a whole gamut of things you can do, really. Follow your passions. Follow your passions. That's what I'm getting at. <laughs> but you do have to jump through the hoops to get there. And, of course. What was yeah. like one of the first ones you like in terms of a lab work or something like that? And how did you get your foot in the door of oh, research yeah. per se? When I was an undergrad, I worked at a soybean research lab. I didn't do anything important. Like they didn't trust me with anything. <laughs> so they're like, you go organize the chemicals in alphabetical order. <laughs> you go look at the aphids on the soybean plants in the greenhouse. But it was still like experiencing lab work. Yeah. Exposing you to the yeah, work. Yeah, exactly. And then I worked at a fuel cell research lab. So that was really cool because I basically prepared these substrates with platinum bala, um, <laughs> for fuel cells. So that's probably another piece of advice is like, even if you don't know what you want to do, like try some different things and it's not forever. Like I worked yeah. at a soybean lab to fuel cell lab. I worked in an inorganic chemistry lab where it was like throwing aluminum in water and watching it sizzle and like doing dumb shit like that in the meantime. <laughs> was that for like an experiment or is this for fun? That was for fun. <laughs> that was for fun. Nice. <laughs> yes. Cool. Well, thank you so much for teaching us about microbe induced cloud formation <laughs> and so much else that we talked about today. Yeah, we really appreciate you coming. Yeah, it's fun. Would you like to leave your contact information for people to reach out to you or where can yeah. they find your work? Our group website is super out of date, so you may just want to email <laughs> me and then <laughs> I'm happy to share media articles or if there's, I mean, one thing I can think of immediately is there's actually a documentary that was on PBS based on this mosaic expedition. Oh, really? Yes, but I can share a link with you guys okay so you can share with everyone cool yeah, yeah it's a cool documentary it's very dramatic love it <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i'm happy to share resources or okay so we can yeah. post cool. your email yes we definitely. will do that <laughs> okay thank you so much again and thanks for listening thank you bye thanks bye